if you'd like to turn there. All the scripture references will be on the walls behind me that will take us our principal text, John chapter 1. Verse 14 of John 1 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, there are times when we read selected scripture passages that are so sublime, so deep, that Lord, we realize and we recognize that we are walking on holy ground. Lord, certainly this is one of these divine mysteries. The Word became flesh. Lord, to the human mind, it's inconceivable, but yet it's been revealed. Lord, help us this morning to grow in our love and affection for your Son, who has redeemed us from all our iniquity through his work at Calvary. Lord, would you bless this time. Speak to us, your people. Open our ears and open our eyes that we might be of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We are in the third Sunday of Advent, as Pastor Kyle mentioned, and the focus of this week is joy. So week one's hope, week two is peace, week three is joy. And so if I were to ask you what is joy, there are many definitions, and one that I like is that there's an inner gladness. You could even term it a deep-seated pleasure with contentment. There's deep-rooted pleasure with contentment. Or perhaps another one I think that works well, a calm delight exuding from a cheerful heart. But if we're going to talk about exuding from a cheerful heart, we would then need to ask, what makes the heart cheerful? I think there are many things that do, but two primary things this morning. There is an assurance that you belong to God, and there is a confidence that he is in control of all things. When you know that you belong to him and you are confident he's in control of all things, the heart can be perpetually cheerful. So joy is not an experience then that necessarily comes from favorable circumstances. But rather, joy is a gift from God to his people. And we see this throughout uh, the New Testament. In Luke 2, that famous Christmas narrative, the angel said to them, that is, the shepherds, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. Jesus in John 15, verse 11, said, These things have I spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. We read in Galatians 5, joy is a fruit of his spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. It goes on with six others. Romans 14, we looked at a few weeks ago. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, just before he goes to the cross, he is praying to his Father, and he's asking for his disciples to have joy. Verse 13, he says, But now I come to you, Christ speaking to his Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Last one, and this is all going to serve a purpose this morning. Joy is actually rooted and found and sourced in God himself. It is one of his communicable attributes. Psalm 16, verse 11. You will show me the path of life. And notice this last phrase. 
in your presence is fullness of joy. Notice that the psalmist didn't just say in your presence is joy, but rather fullness. The most complete expression of joy that is to be had is found in the presence of God himself. It is an essential, it is an attribute of who he is. So the, then my premise this morning, if you and I are to have this complete joy, then we must have access to God's presence because that is where it is supremely and fully located. You can't have complete joy without having God's presence. So you have to have God's presence. And the question I posed to you this morning, where is that found? Well, I want to go back to ancient Israel for just a moment. And you see the was there as they were worshiping in the tabernacle and later would become the temple. So we know the tabernacle was a movable structure made up of three areas where the Israelites would worship God. The first area is known as the outer court. And if you would walk in there, you'd have the brazen altar and you'd also have the laver. Both of those were located in that outer court. It was there in that first outer court where the priests would offer sacrifices and also wash themselves. But then you would actually go into like the tabernacle proper. The second area, it's known as the holy place. This is where the tent structure comes in. And the tabernacle, in that holy place, you would find the table of showbread. You would find a, the golden candlestick and the altar of incense. And then there was another room, the inner room. It was called the most holy place. Or perhaps you and I are most familiar with it as the holy of holies. It was in this inner place, the holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant was held. It was here where the glory of God, the Shekinah glory itself, came down, would fill that room, symbolizing the very presence of God and his people. But this room was marked off. There was a heavy, thick curtain. So why the thick curtain? Why such a walling off of that particular room? Well, it was trying to convey a message. The message was it was not safe to approach God's presence. Sinful man was not allowed access to God's immediate presence. Yes, Israel could worship God. That's fine. But they could only do so from a distance. In Exodus 24, we read these words. Now he, that is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. And Moses alone, picture of Christ, shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. If one was to break through when they had walled that mountain off and saw the glory of the Lord, they would instantly die. It was not safe to have access to the immediate presence of God. But the people were to worship. They were to offer sacrifices. They were to pray. They were even to shout for joy, but they could only do so from a distance. Notice the words, worship from afar. They shall not come near. So that distance then between God and man was visibly seen in the way that the tabernacle had been designed. The presence of God was separate from his people. It was shut off to them. You did not just go in there. Only the high priest could go into that holy of holies, but then only one day a year, and then only with the offering of blood. 
to do less than that would have meant immediate death of the high priest. So why? Why was man not allowed enter, to enter into God's presence? Well, you don't have to guess. Isaiah told us that your iniquities, chapter 58 and 59, verse 2, that your iniquities have separated you from your God. See, when Adam sinned, when he fell into sin, there was a break. A separation occurred between God and man. Man's sin had walled him off from God. He died spiritually. He was separated from God. A breach now existed where once there was none. So to enter into the immediate presence of God would now mean certain death. Because of our sin, man lost the privilege that Adam enjoyed of walking with God in the garden. No longer you have that access. God was showing his people that he was holy, ineffably holy, and separate from us. See, the truth is, our sin had devastating consequences. It brought division. It brought separation. Now there was alienation from God. If man were to have access again to God's presence, he must be reconciled. And in order to be reconciled, his sin must be atoned. So then we come to the close of the Old Testament, and we see the veil, that heavy, thick curtain, is still hanging. It's still in its place. Man is still barred from that holy of holies. He still is denied access into the immediate presence of God. Sobering message, very clear. But then we come to the New Testament, and we read some startling words, yet they're wonderful words, found in Hebrews chapter 10. The writers encouraging the church. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that is the holy of holies, having boldness to enter the holiest how? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. But what veil is he talking about? Not the heavy thick curtain, but that is his flesh. Having a high priest over the house of God. Now notice verse 22. Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Look at the language here. Boldness to enter the holiest, draw near, full assurance, the writer says. I mean, what's happening? I mean, there's a stark change here. Under the old covenant, it was worship from a distance, from afar. Under the new covenant, it is boldly draw near. What made the difference? Lord Jesus, the true tabernacle of God, came near. Now, because of him, there is a new and a living way to enter into the immediate presence of God without death. How? What did the Lord Jesus do? Here in John 1, let's read the text again, verse 4. And the word became flesh and dwelt. That's going to be an important word here. Dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The tabernacle was a dwelling place for God, right? But now there is a new dwelling place for God. Jesus Christ comes as the true tabernacle, the true temple of God. John 2, he says, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, in three days I will raise it. He's the temple. The word there for dwell is the word tabernacle. I'll focus on that a little bit later. But notice the text. The word became flesh. 
Now, as Christians, we're kind of familiar with this passage. We use this a lot. But if you think, if you were just a skeptic, new to the claims of Christianity, you're reading words. How you're hearing word, speech, communication, made flesh. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, who is the word? How is it made flesh? You go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the word word in Greek is logos. So you have a divine word, divine logos, divine communication. The way God speaks is through this logos. He's he's God. Notice he's in the beginning. The same language of Genesis 1, speaking of the eternality of God. So this logos, this word, is eternal. He was with God, that preposition with. So there's a distinction between him and God. The Son is not the same as the Father. The logos is not the same as the Father. And yet we note that this divine logos has always had an eternal, rich, and intimate relationship with God. From all eternity, he's with God. Because the divine the divine being, what we call God, has always existed in a relationship, a community known as the Holy Trinity, the eternal three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing in three distinct persons, yet one God, not three gods. So now go back to the text. It says the Logos was with God. The word was with God. And the word, this Logos, was God. He's distinct from the Father, but he's of the same essence of the Father. He too, and never lost any of his divinity. Literally, God becomes man. That one who told Israel to worship at a distance is the God who came near in the person of the Lord Jesus. God came near. Why? Because you and I could not go to him. Therefore, in grace, he came to us. The Son of God takes on flesh to enter our world for the purpose of redeeming his people. So he has a human body, which would enable him to die for his rebellious people. Because he was truly man, he also had a human mind and human emotions, so he could feel what we feel. He knows what it's like by experience. So the Lord Jesus knew sorrow, He was a man of sorrows, but he knew joy, pleasure, and pain. He would grow tired. He would have to be fed because he was hungry. He became man. So as Hebrews says, he can sympathize with us in our own human frailty or weakness. He knows what it's like. Friends, he gets you, for lack of a better term. This is a mystery, and Paul even refers to it as a great mystery over in 1 Timothy 3. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What's the mystery, Paul? God was manifested in the flesh. Friends, just stop for a moment. I know we're so familiar with with this Christmas message, but familiarity can bring contempt. God, the Almighty, the one who knows no corporal bounds, who is spirit, who created everything simply by his own word, becomes man. So Jesus is this person, and yet he has two natures. He has a human nature, and he has a divine nature. 
This is what theologians refer to as a hypostatic union. Jesus is God, truly God, but Jesus is man, truly man. The two natures are never mingled, and yet they are never separated. And he's not a semi-God or a demi-God, nor is he a superhuman. Jesus is the God-man. So as Calvin would say, the Son of God became a man so that the men might become sons of God. I want you to focus on this verb. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt, Greek word, skeneo. It literally means, if you if you have a literal translation, say he tabernacled among us. So all John is doing, John's kind of inventing a word here. He takes the noun tabernacle and uses it as a verb, much like we might do with the word house. We might say, oh, that building houses 20 people. Houses is not, usually it's not used as a verb. Same thing here. The same word is tabernacle. He just made it a verb here. Now why? Because John is deliberately calling our attention to the fact that Jesus is the true tabernacle of God. He's the meeting place of God. This is the presence of God. Just as God dwelt with his people in ancient Israel in a physical tabernacle, but that was just a foreshadowing. It was, just a, it was, it was simply a preview of the true tabernacle that would come person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about Christ, we're talking about the very presence of God on earth. Colossians 2.9, Paul writing, for in him, that is Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So now you have Christ coming, Lord Jesus, there's a new tabernacle and houses the glory and presence of God and he's dwelling in Israel. By and large, the people miss it. Most of the people at that time did not see his glory. They were blind. Blind was true identity. Now, not all people missed it because we go on to read in verse 14, John writing, he says, And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what does John mean by saying that he and others with him actually beheld the glory of God? Where do they behold the glory of God? All of it's in Christ, and I think it's in three ways. First of all, in the miracles that he did in John chapter 2, you all know the very first miracle that Jesus performed while he turned water into wine. He's at a wedding, wedding of Cana. But notice verse 11, and notice what it says here. This beginning of signs or miracles, did in Cana, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, but I want you to notice that phrase, manifested disciples believed him. So the disciples saw the glory of God through the miracles that he performed, beginning with this one in Cana. Just a, it was the very first one. Jesus did what no other man did or has done since. He turns water into wine. He walks on water. By his own power, he multiplies fish and bread. He opens eyes that were blind. He opens ears that were deaf. He gives loosens tongues of the mute, cleanses lepers, and this man even raises the dead. These miracles are all a display of the awesome glory of who God is. So Jesus is putting on display the glory of God in that he did what no other man could do. And then secondly, we know at the transfiguration. 
There's three disciples, the inner three, Peter, James, and John. They are invited to go up to a mountain with the Lord Jesus, and they're given unparalleled access to this marvelous event that took place there as Jesus is transfigured before them. We read about it in Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. And notice the text. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased here. Friends, this event is a display of the glory of God. He's showing a preview of his glorious person that's been veiled in flesh. Lastly, just through the humility of his life, Leon Morris writes about this. It's so beautiful. He said, where people needed help, he, that is the Lord, helped them. Where there were sick, he healed them. Where there were ignorant folk, he taught them. Where there were hungry people, he fed them. All the time he was seeking the needy. He did not hunt the palaces of kings and governors. He was not found in the high places of the earth. All his life he was among God's little people, those who in one way or another felt their need. And wherever there was a need, he was found doing lowly service. That is what Christ came to do. And that is glory. The one who hung moon and stars allowed himself to be scorned, ridiculed, abused, rejected. We read that his heart was broken over his people's rejection of him. And he would even go further, allow his body to be broken so that he might redeem them. His hands and feet were pierced. He willingly allows his body to be nailed to a cross by the very hands that he created. That is glory, folks wonder this morning, do you see in Jesus Christ the glory of God? If not, you're not a Christian. See, you cannot be a Christian if you do not see in Jesus inestimable, inestimable worth and value and glory. A Christian, because it's a work of God's Spirit, is one whose mind and heart have been gripped by the glory they see in Many people admire him. Others may admire him. But those who see in him the glory of God fall down and worship are his enemies. John wrote, he came full of grace and truth. It was not grace at the expense of truth, nor was it truth at the expense of grace. What is grace? Undeserved kindness? Undeserved favor from God? It's the opposite of merit. It's favor shown to those who deserve no favor. If God were to take the entire human race and consign them all to hell, that would be just. It would be right. What else do rebellious sinners deserve who lifted up their hands and took it? God owes us nothing. Nothing he is a debtor to no one. So any blessing that you and I enjoy, that enjoy this morning is a result of grace. Every blessing. You have food on the table this afternoon? That's grace. You have a roof over your head? That's grace. You have a job, one you don't like? That's grace. 
You have a body to work? That is grace. You have friends, family? That's grace. But there is a special grace, a saving grace, that comes only through Christ Jesus. And this is the grace that redeems children of wrath and makes them children of the kingdom, makes them sons of God. The special grace that I'm talking about, this saving grace, saves sinners and makes them sons. grace. It's grace. Grace begins it. Grace sustains it. Grace culminates it. Long. It's from grace to grace. You just can't get away from it. Romans 3, we read, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. According to the riches of his grace. 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, no, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time. Lastly, Titus 3.7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs to the hope of eternal life. You're not just a son. You're an heir or an heiress. Understand, believer, to inherit all things. All things are yours in Christ. That's great. Jesus Christ came full of grace. He also came full of truth. Now, many people try to put these two things at odds as a grace were an enemy of truth. But yet, in the person of the Lord Jesus, grace and truth come together perfectly. They kiss each other, if you will. <coughs> Our culture doesn't understand this. They affirm personal truth. I, I get so tired of hearing, this is my truth. And that implies it's not necessarily your truth. Or stand in your truth. as though, And we don't need a qualifier. It's not my or yours. Just stand in truth. Truth is not relative. But the word of God, that logos... He takes on human flesh, he enters our world, and he revealed to us the truth of God. So the Lord Jesus came revealing the truth of God, but he also came full of grace to all who would receive him. What about the one who will not receive him? They will find judgment. John 8, 24. Jesus himself said, if you do not believe that I am he, right, basically it says in the original, if you not believe that I am. You will die in your sins. You must believe and trust that he is the one sent from God to save you. You're saying, I don't believe that. You will die in your sins and perish eternally. The Lord Jesus came and declared to you the truth of God. It's what we're endeavoring to do this morning. You must believe the message if you do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you do not believe he is the Lagos who took on flesh and came from heaven, the Bible says he will die in your sins. There's nothing to anticipate other than terrifying judgment. But for the believer, what about for us? The future is gloriously bright. Why? Because Christ came as the true tabernacle of God. 
Christ came, died, was buried, rose again. He ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again one day in glory. What does that mean? That means there is coming a day when all the effects and ravishes of the curse will be gone, and we once again will forever dwell with our God as his people. No possibility of sin. All that Adam lost, the second Adam regained and restored. Revelation 21.3. I love this verse. Notice that, the, the, again, the connection between the tabernacle. The same one who wrote 1.14. Now the Apostle John's writing Revelation. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he, that is God, will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Notice that phrase. The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. What happened in ancient Israel? God dwelled with them. And he was shut off from their thick, heavy curtain. What happened in Christ? He's a true tabernacle. The curtain's torn and the body was broken. What happens in the future? God himself is there. Ever dwell. And think about that day. That's going to be a day like no other. Now, why do I say that? It'll be a day of complete ecstasy, utter joy. Why do I say that? Remember how we opened at the very beginning? Fullness of joy is found where? In the presence of God. And what are you and I promised? That we will forever dwell in the presence of God. Psalm 16, 11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. There will never, sometimes people worry about heaven being boring. Never be a boring day there. It's fullness of joy. Complete and utter ecstasy. Every day you wake up and you think it can't get better and somehow it's better and it's no different. It's just best all the time. And we're in a physical world at this point. Dwelling with him in the new heaven, the earth in our resurrected, glorified bodies. So on this third week of Advent, we get a taste of the joy, but it's just a taste because our faith has not yet become sight. It will. Are you anticipating that day? So Christians, what you say, what do we do? Well, Christians have always said, worship the King. We give thanks to Him in the Eucharist. We Eucharist day of lift up our voice in thanks. And I would also tell you, live for that day of joy. Find your deep, abiding, resting joy in the true tabernacle of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that can sustain that heavy pressure. A spouse could never sustain that pressure. No experience can sustain that pressure. Put all of your eggs in the one basket of joy called Christ. Lean into him. If you're here today without Christ, you are separated. It's a true statement. You need a Savior. Desperately need a Savior. And it was for this purpose that Christ Jesus was born. John 2 11. Burn to you, born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Today, if you're here and your eyes have never seen Jesus glorious in the way that I described, you've never bowed your knee and said repentance before him, confessing him as Lord and 
day run to him. Run to him. Run to him. Receive him. He will receive you. He will restore you. He will save you. If you want to know more about that, like Pastor, I don't even want to hear you talk about it. Please, I beg you. I mean, there is nothing in life that's more important than what I've just stated. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, the true friend. And there you will find life. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much. Lord, my heart is overflowing just with the prospect that I want to live with you forever, Father, because of what your Son Christ has done.